Amen. All right. Good morning, church. I want to welcome everyone here this morning. If you're new with us, my name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. This looks like fun. I don't know what this is, but <laughs> if you're going to attack me, do it right, I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm done with this. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, I guess that's my youth program attacking me while I'm going to preach, but that's okay. <laughs> Why ask the youth guy to come up if you're not going to get attacked by youth? I mean, I think that's just fitting, but... Uh, yeah, so my name is Derek. If you're new with us, I want to welcome you guys here. We're so excited for you to be worshiping here with us at Zion today. Uh, and it is good to be back in the park, am I right? Woo! Now, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of rain. I'm glad we got it. Uh, I think a lot of us were really looking forward to it. I know my plants on my deck were definitely looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm sure there's some farmers that are really happy that we got some rain today or yesterday. Uh, but I do have a pool party going on tonight for middle school and high school. So if we can pray that it stays away from the seven to nine hour, that would be awesome. So kids out there, you guys are invited. But today we get to continue to explore the Lord's Prayer and see what it reveals about our relationship with God. And I love the Lord's Prayer and there's so much to unpack about it. My grandparents and I, and they are in the audience today, so i got to be careful, uh, we discussed this prayer several times in the past few years. They are strong proponents that the prayer should be said in every single church service. And for the most part, I agree with them. And let me be clear, it's okay if we do disagree. There's nothing wrong with that because we, we all love Jesus. We're all a part of the family of God. And in this case, they're my actual family too. So that kind of helps. But however... I do take more of the approach that I like when it's said together, but I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that it has to be said every Sunday or else. To me, it's a blueprint of how to pray, and it helps us grow closer to God. But to them, there's a great deal of significance and reverence for the act. It's a good way of honoring God, but I think there's even a little bit more to it than that. To them, it's, there's something about it being said as a part of a group. There's something about it uh, being said repeatedly each and every week. Like there's something special about building a sense of community in this way. And that we need, to, we need that frequent reminder so that we don't forget. And I do believe this is true in general, as long as it doesn't just become that repetitive thing you do. As long as it just doesn't become that repetitive thing that we give no thought to. If we are just going through the motions without truly taking the time to reflect on what the words actually are being, like what's actually being said and what it means, that's when I think there becomes a problem. This type of prayer should be a connection with God. And a couple weeks ago on the Zion podcast, the Breakthrough Breakdown, we actually spend a good portion of time uh, debating that very topic. And we, we, we talk about both sides of it. And so if you want more on it, go to that and watch that because I don't have time to go into it today, but, I, but there is a great discussion on that if you want to know a little bit more. But I will say, all, I'm saying all this because the research I did into this sermon has given me some more insight into this discussion. There does seem to be something important about this prayer being said as a group. And a case can be made about saying it even more than just once a week. 
but I don't want to spoil all the fun right at the beginning. So uh, we're going to take our time to kind of explore it, to kind of build up into it. And so let's unpack this week's verse a little bit. So we're going to begin with a little recap from last Sunday. There was something about uh, the message that Jason gave that really spoke to me. And I think it plays a huge impact in how we're supposed to interpret this week's verse. Jason discussed this idea of a kingdom and what it looks like. And basically, the Sermon on the Mount is the blueprint for what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. And this kingdom is so different from the world that we know. We live in a society that does not generally live out the kingdom principles described in the Sermon on the Mount. And so the part that stood out to me is the fact that, yeah, Americans have a difficult time understanding what kingdom looks like in actual practice. Sure, we know what a king is. We've heard about them. We've seen them depicted on TV. But we do. We live in a republic, which means that the power is held by the people and their elected officials. So this structure is a lot different than a true monarchy. And so it could be hard for some, us to, for some of us to relate. However, I do think we understand some kingdom language. But instead of it being a king that rules over us, Americans live as if we are the kings. Our culture, it like sets out to set ourselves up as kings over our own castles. We make ourselves the most important part of our lives. We are taught a very individualistic approach to life. And I'm not saying that's everyone, and I'm not saying that everyone out there is like that, but I do think it is a very true thing. We set ourselves up to be the most important thing in our lives. Even though I'm told constantly the world doesn't revolve around me, it's hard to kind of convince your brain of that sometimes. And the problem is, is that this leads to selfish attitudes and perspectives. And that this type of attitude, that is when... Uh, when we become kings of our own castle, the problem becomes is that there's no room for Jesus. There's no room for Jesus to be, to be in charge. There's no room for him to reign if we are making ourselves the king. And so this way of living can affect the way we understand this next part of the Lord's Prayer. Because submission, dependence, and humility are going to play a huge role in this section. So we need to keep that in mind as, we're, as we go. And let me tell you, being from, an Amer from America is not a bad thing, but we just need to understand how it might affect the way we interpret Scripture, because it does. It plays a huge role in how we see things, especially in this particular verse. And so the Lord's Prayer makes a shift at this point. The first half of the prayer focused on God's glory, while the second half seems to focus on praying for ourselves. And this is kind of strange when you think about it. We go from praising God to talking about dinner. And that's a pretty big shift that takes place. And it might also feel a little bit awkward for some people. How do you pray about yourself after you just praise the glory of God? How do you then shift focus to praying for your own needs? That can be awkward. That can be difficult for some of us. The American New Testament scholar and theologian Scott McKnight put it this way. The second half finds itself asking God for bread, for forgiveness, and for a moral life that follows out of a God whose name is to be hallowed, a kingdom is, whose desire is upmost, and a divine that will shape all that we do. 
So just like the Sermon on the Mount, every single verse seems to build off the ones that came before us. So everything that Jason had been preaching, this plays right into that. And what we see here is that God's character is being revealed. God is a caring father. Jesus demonstrates his power and transcendence by observing that he is in heaven. He showed that God, that God is valuable and that his name should be honored. And finally, the prayer establishes God as king and that his kingdom will reach every corner of the earth. The first part of this prayer served as a foundation that allows for the rest of the prayer to take place. So this week we're exploring Matthew 6:11. Give us this day our daily bread. There are only seven little words to this verse, but they come together to form a pretty powerful meaning. The term daily bread appears to stand out to me the most when I look at this verse. This is not a phrase that we use every single day. Yo, give me a piece of that daily bread. I, I, I'm pretty hip if you don't know that. Uh, I speak the lingo of the youths, so, uh, but no, no one says that. That would be weird, uh, so I'm just kidding about that. No, that phrase is not something that we use on, on a daily basis. So what exactly does it mean, and why do we want it? After doing a little research into the Greek word, at the same time of exploring like several different commentaries, it seems pretty universal that this is an odd phrase. Not just today, but it's, it was odd back then as well. The Greek word is epiousios. Yeah, I practiced that a lot, so, so I could say that. So hopefully I, I, I said it right. But the odd part is, is that this is, this is only found twice in the New Testament, and both times it is referencing the Lord's Prayer. It's not a word common to the Greek language at all. So it was unique words specifically used by these particular writers. I won't say they made it up, but it sounds pretty close like they just made it up. And it's been given several different meanings and interpretations. And so in general, daily bread means something like this. It means tomorrow's bread, tomorrow's meal. Or maybe if prayed in the morning, it could, it could also mean today's bread. Basically, it's a reference to a future meal, a future bread, a future sustenance or maybe even a future hope. And so now, bread is an important symbol found throughout biblical history. First off, it was a part of the Jewish diet for a long time. I mean, it's something they could make. They could make it easy. It provided nourishment. So it was a, it was a staple in their diet. And it was also a symbol that depicted God's provision for the Israelites. When they were brought out of Egypt, God provided them with daily bread so that they would not go hungry. So it's, it's, it, you could see it as a daily provision from God. It's also a symbol of life and abundance. In modern context, bread could be synonymous with the term money, like how a family might have a breadwinner or bringing home the bread. It can mean coming together to share a meal with one another. Maybe you've heard the term breaking bread with somebody. Or the ultimate form of this would be when we break bread together in communion. Maybe you've heard these words before. In the night in which he was betrayed, Lord Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We say that every time we have communion. And during this sacrament, the bread represents the body of Christ. And it connects with his death and resurrection on the cross. So all of these things bring out a different viewpoint of what bread could mean, what this term could mean. 
which in turn can help shape the way that we receive this verse. But they, they seem to fit nicely into two major categories. The verse is meant to meet our physical needs and or our spiritual ones. And so first, let's take a look at our physical needs. This would be the most straightforward way of interpreting this prayer. Simply, the Lord's Prayer shows us that we should pray for our physical needs, food, shelter, clothing, security. Adults, you guys, maybe that those, those words may have clicked in your head a little bit. Maybe you've learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs growing up, and that just kind of clicked with you. Now, I'm not saying whether it's, it, it's true or not, but what I am saying is that there is a sense to this that makes sense. A, pers a person's basic needs usually have to be met before anything else. It is difficult to listen to somebody sharing the gospel if they're starving to death. It is hard to listen to somebody when you're hungry. And so this idea was kind of modeled for us in the Old Testament. As I mentioned earlier, God had delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He freed them, and then when they became hungry, they began to complain. It didn't matter that they were freed from slavery. The people were hungry. And maybe even a little hangry, too, because they, they did get a little, they got a little grumpy there throughout parts of Scripture. But despite all that, God delivered once again. So in Exodus 16, 11 through 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know I am the Lord your God. God provided for their physical needs, of, of, of the, the needs of his people daily in the desert. He literally gave them bread. God satisfied their physical hunger. He met their needs. And it ends by saying that after that, they were fed, after they were fed, then they knew they would know that he was God. Physical hungers were met. Then they could know that he was God. But that's not exactly what we're asking for in this verse. I think when we pray the Lord's Prayer, I don't think any of us, when we pray it, we want bread to just appear in front of us. Now, some of you probably do really like bread, and you might be thinking, man, that's a great idea. But I think in general, that's not what we're doing when we're praying this prayer. We're not actually asking for literal bread for, from the fall from the sky. But these passages do point to God's loving, gracious provision for his people, even for people characterized by sin and grumbling. We pray this prayer when we pray this prayer, it is asking God for the little things. Jesus displayed the same type of heart, a heart that showed compassion for the hungry. This prayer also shows that we can take these small things. We can take the things that we may think are un unimportant or the things that we may not think may be a big deal to some people, and we can lay that at the feet of Jesus. We can bring it to God. And so as I said, a big shift took place going from praising God to asking for his help. But this shows God cares about our daily needs. And let me be clear, hunger is very real. The Israelites would have known true hunger, and this prayer would have been very important to them. However, in America, in Clear Lake, here at Zion, most of us may not understand what true hunger feels like. And the true meaning of this verse might be wasted on us. 
It might be hard to know what it would be like to not know where your next meal is going to come from. This idea of will you be able to eat tomorrow? For most of us, the food is in our pantry, the food is in our refrigerator, or the food is at the grocery store. But at the time of this prayer, that's not necessarily, well, that wasn't the case. They definitely didn't have refrigerators. But it wasn't the case for them. They would have known what true hunger was like. But most of us are unaccustomed to this feeling. So when we say that we uh, take small stuff to God, I'm not dismissing true hunger or poverty. What I'm saying is that God cares both for the big things in our lives and the small things. The things that we think are important and the things that may come off as unimportant. It's so easy to look at God only on a big picture scale. Sometimes it's easy to forget that he cares about us right now in this moment. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus highlights this very nature. He continually chases after the lost or seemingly unimportant people. And this makes me think of the story in Luke about the 99 sheep. Well, there were 100, but then one runs off. Jesus was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, which caused judgment from the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And we all know what that feels like. We all know, one, what it feels like to be judged. And we also know what it feels like to judge others. And this story is no different. The Pharisees and the, the, right, the teachers of the law, they were judging Jesus. And so Luke 15, 3 through 7. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God cares about the little things. He left the herd of sheep in dangerous open country to save the one sheep. And this is hard for us to understand sometimes. This is hard for us to do in actual practice. From an economical standpoint, this didn't make sense. Why would you risk your entire flock for one sheep? But God cares about that one lost sheep, the little things. He rejoices in the minor victories. And it comes from a real place of care and compassion whether it be him knowing the numbers of hairs on our head in Luke 12, 7, or that he showed love and compassion to little children in Matthew 9, 19, 14. In this case, he restored them. In a culture that didn't value children, he lifted them up and provided value to them. God definitely cares about the little things, and Jesus shows that they are worthy of our prayer. The prayer also shows us the, the need for daily dependence on him. From the very beginning, we were designed to need God. Think about the garden. Think about uh, Adam and Eve. First off, we are God's creation, meaning he is the creator. We kind of needed him to exist. That's the simplest way of looking at it. But even more than that, Adam needed a relationship, so God gave him Eve. And together, they were able to plant the garden, but God was needed to require it to grow. And so the interesting thing about this type of dependence on God is that it was required even before the fall, meaning that sin had nothing to do with it. Sin did not create this dependence. We are simply 
designed to be dependent on God. In the garden, they knew, they knew and experienced abundance. But then after the fall, they experienced hardship. And so their, our dependence on God became greater. But now it kind of shifted. It, was, it's, it went from being more about provision to being also about needing his mercy. So this brings me to a very important point. Dependence on God is a good thing. This is another one of those things that kind of goes against our nature. It goes against what culture tells us. We don't like to depend on other people. We don't like to depend on things. It pushes against our desire to be independent. Because we praise that independence. However, God wants us to depend on him. And I, th I just want you to know that that's a good thing. Depending on God is a good thing. And our basic needs that I mentioned earlier helps highlight the need for this level of dependence. How many of you, you can raise your hand if you want, but how many of you in the audience are hungry right now? Maybe you didn't get an opportunity to go over to the donuts, and as we're getting closer and closer to the noon hour, your, stomach, your stomach's starting to grumble. You're starting to feel that hunger a little bit. Every day, we have a hunger. Every day, we have a hunger that needs to be satisfied. We need daily sustenance. We have a built-in reminder in our stomachs of our need for God's provision. It's the foundation of why people fast. Anytime you get hungry, it provides you the opportunity to think and turn and pray to God. It's a little reminder of our unending need. Finally, it feels like Jesus is asking us to pray in community. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a group wording being used here. Give us our daily bread. And I know it's not necessarily stated, but I believe there is a call associated with this part of the prayer. And I think scripture shows it in the, the idea of community as being built in the book of Acts. As the church begins to be formed, it starts to show that a family of Christ is coming together as they support one another, as they build up each other's needs. And in Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Just like in Acts, we are praying this prayer together as a family of Christ, and by praying it, we are agreeing to be a part of God's solution that we are called to do our part to help out our brothers and sisters who may be in need. If there's a physical need, we need to meet it as the church. If there are people who are hungry, we need to work together to make sure that they are cared for. Our staff chose a common phrase to be a part of our core values. The we is bigger than the me. This attitude is what, is what this whole prayer is all about. We must look after our brothers and sisters and lift them up when they are in need. And also when they're not in need, we should always be lifting people up in prayer. Remember at the beginning when I told you that uh, about my grandparents and how they, it sounds like this, they might be actually right. I believe that it is important that we are saying this prayer together, that we are saying this prayer as a part of a community because I believe that we are called to be a part of God's solution. That when we look around each other, that we know that if anyone needs our help, that we are willing to step up and be a part of that solution. We are willing to be the hands and feet of God here on earth. 
there is a benefit to saying this prayer together. It reminds us that we are united as one family. It calls us to be an active part of God's plan. So those are the physical needs. And now I want to spend some time focusing on the spiritual needs real quick. And this idea of praying for spiritual sustenance. Though this passage teaches us that God designed our physical need, it also seems to point us to a deeper spiritual need as well. We are constantly being called into a closer relationship with God. And it is something that should be experienced daily. Just like how we experience hunger each day, we should hunger after God in that same way. Each time we pray for daily bread, we should recognize our deeper need for the bread of life. Jesus is the bread that satisfies our spiritual hunger. John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. When the verse says daily bread, it could also be read as bread of tomorrow. And there's two, ty two ty kind of ways of looking at this idea. The first is that we don't need to worry about tomorrow because we can trust that God will provide today. This does not mean that we are not supposed to act. We are still supposed to uphold our end of the relationship, but we should not go to bed in fear of tomorrow. And the second view of this verse is also talking about a future bread, meaning that it is referring to the kingdom that is yet to come, that Jesus is going to return to fulfill his kingdom on earth. Once God's name is once and for all, hallowed, when his kingdom finally comes and when his will is continually done. And so as we continue this sermon series, it is interesting to learn more and more about his character. And here's the big idea from today's message. God is our provision. Together as followers of Christ, God provides. He provides for his people both in the little things and in the big things. So what does this mean for us today? The word that keeps coming up when I reflect on this verse is that, that idea of dependence. As we work through the Lord's Prayer, everything at the beginning pointed us towards the glory of God. Author R. Albert Moyler Jr. said it like this. This verse reminds us of our dependence on God for even the most fundamental needs of life. The contrast in this prayer is striking. He is glorious, hallowed in heaven, and omnipotent. We, on the other hand, are incapable of even getting basic sustenance without help. In these words, then, Jesus teaches us to exalt God while humbling ourselves. The radical God-centeredness of prayer continues. Man's pride has no place before the throne of God. This is his kingdom, the kingdom that we have been learning about over the past several months, the one outlined in the Beatitudes, the one that the Gospel of Matthew is trying to establish and one of the key elements of this kingdom is a daily dependence on God. And I understand that this topic might be hard for us to relate. The more we have, the less we think we need help from God. And I'm not saying that about talking about stuff, but, it, but here's an example. If life is going well and someone asks you for prayer, it might be harder to come up with an answer of what you need prayer for. This isn't judgment. This isn't about judging anything. It's a simple reality. It's easy to become blinded to God's provision, to God's blessings in your life. But here's the thing. Whether we're rich or poor, God wants us to depend on him daily. He wants us to pray for our daily needs. 
And there's a simple reason why. It's God's nature to want to provide. His love and compassion for us never ceases. Depending on God takes a heart of humility. It requires us to submit to God's kingship and is willing to submit to his rule. However, we should not be afraid. God is worth honor. Jesus is worthy of submitting to. The Holy Spirit is worth following. The character of the Trinity is evident in this little verse. At times it may not feel like God provides for us in the way that we think is best, but he will always find a way to provide to us according to his infinite love and care. And this is where it gets hard. This is where being dependent on someone requires trust. There is a risk associated to this type of faith. What is standing in the way of putting your trust and dependence in God? What fear is preventing you from submitting to God's will and plan for your life? Whether physical or spiritual, what hunger are you needing God to satisfy? When we say this part of the prayer, we are praying for a future hope, one that is completely fulfilled when Jesus returns. There is a hope found in that. But just remember, God still provides daily. From the garden all the way to the end of time, we must depend on God. We require his daily bread. We require his sustenance. We require his mercy. God is our provision. So to satisfy my grandparents uh, and to practice praying for God, I do want to say the Lord's Prayer today. Please join me if you know it. And if you don't, that's okay. You can turn to Matthew 6, 9 through 13 in your Bible or in the Bible tool at the bottom of the Zion app. And as we pray, I want you to think about how God has provided for your life. Be thankful. Think about your needs of tomorrow and believe that God provides. Think about how God may want to use you in building his kingdom. He might be trying to reveal a plan that involves you helping the brothers and sisters who are in need. Be open to the Holy Spirit. Let him work in your hearts and let him guide your actions and your attitude. So don't just say this prayer. Believe it. Please pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.